took the brand, the Couture Club, from zero to 50 million inside seven years. We're then in a position where JD Sports owned us, but recently we've just slid that percentage back, probably made every mistake there is to make. Best thing about it is we're still here. The business is performing better than it ever has done. What's been your biggest struggle throughout building this brand over the last seven years? It took us six months to get all our traffic back up to even anywhere near where it was before. So you'd killed your SEO, had you? How much money have we lost and left on the table by bringing things in in the wrong way? Yeah, most business yeah, owner. Yeah, yeah. Even though I was the founder, I didn't have the voice to kind of go, I've employed you, but I'm going to disagree with everything you say. Do this. And that was probably a self-confidence issue. How do we give more value, produce better products? How do we make our marketing at another level compared to what it used to be? When we do store events and different things like that, it's a good way of us actually engaging with the customer. Go to South Korea as well. Look at a lot of the fashion there because it's so far ahead. It's what South Korea is? Yeah. Stop focusing on what you're chasing and enjoy while you're chasing it. First things first, guys, before we get started with this podcast, do me a solid favor and subscribe to this on whatever platform you're listening to it right now. Whether that's YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I'd appreciate if you just hit that subscribe button and it lets me know that the content that I'm putting out for you guys is hitting your ears at the right time. Much love. This podcast is sponsored by contentremoval.com. So whether you're looking to remove any images, videos, search results, fake Instagram accounts, get in touch with us at contentremoval.com. Welcome back to the Frankie D podcast. And have we got another absolute banger for you today? I've got the man, Ross Worswick, who took the brand, the Couture Club, from zero to 50 million inside seven years. My man, welcome to my home. Welcome to the podcast. And mate, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for having me, mate. Um, really looking forward to it. As you know, I'm an avid listener of the channel, so I'm excited to be on it. Yeah, you, you're probably just telling me a few fibs, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm five minutes away. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm yeah, just kidding, yeah. mate. I, I've been listening, you know I have, so. Yeah. Mate, obviously, massive journey for you in the last seven years, but I want to go a little bit in-depth into, obviously, your curiosity into, into the fashion side of stuff and how you kind of got started and what kind of pulled you to it. Um, when I was younger and I was at school, my main interest was fashion, really. And I was actually meant to go to uni to study uh, fashion design and development. But at the time, I was racing cars and I didn't actually have time to go to university. So, because that was kind of my job. So, I literally didn't end up going to university at all. But that was what I'd applied for at all universities. Um, but I had to focus on the racing because that's what I was doing at the time. What kind of got you into into racing in the first place, mate? Uh. Um, my dad and my uncle. My dad's racing rallied his, his whole life. Um, raced everything up until like old fashioned Formula One cars. So, um, yeah, done the European Rally Championship, won the Ferrari Challenge multiple times. So, when I was four years old, my dad put me in a go kart and just said go. So, uh, it didn't end well the first time, but I mean, after that, I practiced and practiced until when I was eight, I started racing professionally around the country. And then as I got older around the world, mate, do you you kind of think though? that obviously I've noticed this from from my childhood obviously my dad was a tradesman and I kind of felt kind of not pressure but kind of like a an expectation that because my dad was a tradesman I would go into being a tradesman did you kind of feel that kind of pressure for yourself when you were growing up yeah I think also it's down to my dad was interested in that I'm probably not interested in football and other sports like say some of the other parents were so naturally have a we have a bond over something so we spent a lot more time doing that and I think for him, because his passion was was motorsports and racing and cars, um, he was happier to take me all over the country and around the world with racing than he would have been with something he wasn't interested in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I just, I, it's amazing how what our parents and how they're programmed kind of kind of dictates our early years as a child you know and how that and how that kind of goes so we kind of formulate our interests predicated on what our parents are interested in and then we come out of that and we find that we've got other passions and obviously you found obviously uh you you're interested more in the clothing stuff and the fashion stuff and modeling and kind of so how did it how did it progress into that so it kind of progressed probably in between that stage of when i finished racing and we couldn't afford to continue I started working in nightlife, which is probably a lot more involved in like fashion, you know, TV, different things like that, and then fell into the TV TV world slightly. And I suppose it was only once I'd been on TV and I probably had a, a very small fan base, but a fan base that kind of made me re- have the confidence, I suppose, to actually want to start it. I think I was when I was younger, I didn't really have any confidence in myself on anything other than racing. I knew I was good at that, but then when it came to anything outside of that, school, I always struggled at very good at art, design, technology, but then when it came to anything academic, I struggled. So for me, it was, it was finding the confidence to actually start the brand and by being on TV and having a following. That kind of gave me that. Yeah. Well, the t- the, so when you were out there running these night and events and all this kind of stuff, which kind of a lot of a lot of guys, like even like Chris Williamson got into that as well, like Newcastle. But when you were out there doing these events, is, is that something that kind of where you got approached to do this like reality TV stint? Yeah, I think the TV stuff all came from that because I was in Manchester in the winter in Marbella in the summer. So, you know, you're you're around all, you know, you're on the what's the so-called scene, as it said. So naturally they look for people that are working in that, that know a lot of girls, know a lot of guys that are kind of part of that group for TV probably because, you know, you know, they have fun. Did, 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 did you kind of see it as a natural progression then to, to kind of go from that to that? But it was. I think it happened naturally, but it wasn't part of a plan initially. It was only later on, once I'd done TV once, I knew that I needed to go, or I didn't need to go, and I wanted to go on again to kind of give my business a boost I had set up at that time. But initially, it was part of, like, I was just happy working in nightlife. Granted, I didn't have a, a real plan for life. I was, you know, I was making all right money and just getting by. But um, when TV came knocking on the door, I obviously took the opportunity to, you know, increase my profile and use it to benefit me in life rather than just be known for TV. Did it did, when you when you go on and you take part in programs like that? Does it take a part of your soul as well with it if you let it? I think if you let it, yeah. But for me, I just went on holiday when there's cameras there, <laughs> and that was and, pretty much how I treated it. I just did what I wanted to do, went on camera, and just had fun with what you know. Some of the people were my mates before, some were my mates after. And I just enjoyed it. I think some people get eaten up by it. Um, and other people don't, but I I just enjoyed the process more than anything. So I don't really have any negatives towards TV. Yeah, I think. Have you have you like personally seen like people getting eaten up by it in like people you know and stuff? Um, not necessarily. Not people I know personally. Most people I know personally that have been on TV have kind of enjoyed the process a bit, like I I did, and not taking it too serious or not treating it too seriously. I think there becomes a time when you know when people come off TV and they probably haven't forward planned enough in life of what they're going to do next or they haven't made any investments and they kind of enjoyed it the moment too much and didn't really think for the future and I think that's when that comes but um, most people around me to be fair have kind of kept the ball rolling but but you know when you're on TV and you and you're in that moment and you're in that zone and everything's happening and you've got all these different offers coming in to represent different brands and everything else you're going to get off the back of these kind of scenarios. 
what what point did you realize and you had to set up your own brand in order to kind of like leverage it in the right way so that you're growing something that you can that is a saleable asset and all that kind of stuff so for me what actually happened was when i first went on tv we filmed it for about six months before it released so at that point um i spoke to scott who's now a business partner who had at the time a bit more experience in sourcing and he had an import export business from china at the time and i said to him like i've always wanted to have a clothing brand i filmed this show it's, i'm hoping it's going to be big like can you help me get started so i spent probably the whole of six months well it was actually longer to be fair i was doing a lot of work trying to start the brand and we were, you know we were using factories in nottingham not even leicester we were just like really yeah literally like anyone that we could find i didn't really have any experience i tried to work with china but when we were first starting out i didn't really have any caps or anything like that i was like sending off some of my designer shorts to get sampled and they weren't coming back and it was just like i was really struggling at the time so um yeah we ended up getting our first stuff made in nottingham and by the time the show aired, I don't think we, we still hadn't launched yet, but it wasn't far after. So I kind of got a bit of traction back when the, the show aired and then launched the brand probably about three months later. So it worked out quite well in the fact that I had that time to really focus on building something up, or at least not building it, making it. And then once I had a bit of relevancy by being on TV, um, it kind of pushed it forward. And you and you knew you didn't want your resident like your, your forever relevancy to come from TV stuff. Yeah, for me, the TV was was just a bit of fun, and I I enjoyed it for what it was. But it was never something that I wanted to do going forward for the rest of my life. It was more um, how can it benefit me with other things. Yeah, and then you've obviously leveraged it into the brand. What what was it that kind of made made you focus on on just clothing though? It was what I cared about. I always cared about my image from when I was probably 14, 15. I was at school, I'd, you know, buy whatever I could save up for at Christmas and birthdays. I'd buy designer stuff and things like that. So it was the one thing that I was super interested in outside of racing and probably always appreciated clothing and how I dressed. And I always wanted to kind of create my own clothes, even if at the time it was just for myself. Um, and then obviously it kind of meant it was for other people as well when we started the brand. Yeah, so you you, you set out with a, an ultimate vision then of of what to to make uh, men, I suppose, at the time feel yeah. better about themselves and to look and look and feel something more than. I think that's it. Yeah, I think the whole thing. I think clothing gives people confidence. It, sometimes you know they put an item of clothing on and they feel better. They they feel cool. They feel like you know they, they fit in slightly or or don't fit in if they don't want to fit in. It's kind of it gives you a feeling. I think that's the the purpose behind clothing, more so than just you know it's an item of clothing to to wear. It's more how it makes you feel. And did you set off in in the initial period? I suppose you set off with a, a set of pieces, like a collection, so to speak, that you kind of built out. That kind of it was so many pieces. It was it was a lot smaller than that. I think it was one t shirt in three colours, and and then about a month later we dropped like what's you probably now say is a cut off vest, which was like almost a t-shirt, but with the arm sliced off. Um, and that was it. So we started with literally five products. Yeah, you say that's it, but I, th- but I was um, speaking to another guy the other day and, and like, he's a very successful brand and he launched with, with like one product in three colors as well. 
I think that's where a lot of people who listen to this podcast might get caught in like analysis paralysis stage when they're when they're trying to launch or trying to build something. It's like they go and create too many variables. Whereas you're, what you've just said there is don't create as many variables at the start. Just have like one skew, three colors, done. I think that was pretty much it. And also back to why we got it made in Nottingham was because we could actually produce like 50. So we'd buy the fabric and then we'd find that the lady that made it up for us in Nottingham um, from our pattern, she'd literally would make us 50. So we'd have the roll of fabric and we could make 50 and we didn't have, you know, loads of stocks sat on the ground or some people have the pressure of, you know, hitting minimums and 300s and things like that. I think the most important thing starting out is, is starting small and testing it because you don't even know what it is yet. Yeah, yeah, and exactly right. You you don't know what you, you you didn't know what the couture club was in essence. You kind of just thought saw it as maybe you you might have even seen it as like I don't know whether this business is going to even last six to twelve months because it might it's just off the back of the re- reality stuff, right? Yeah, and it was for me. It was my f- first ever business and my only real ever business. So you can't. I think again back to the confidence thing. When I first started, I didn't really have any expectations. Of course you dream, you have dreams, but they weren't that calculated. They were more a case of, oh, I'd love it to be successful, but I didn't know how to make it that successful at that time. So um, yeah, we had to kind of cover our backs and, and just play sensible with it. Do you remember, remembering back to that time when you started and obviously those first initial um, pieces that you released, what is the, what is what was the key turning point in in that whole process for you that of something where you kind of really had a transformational lesson in that? I suppose it was probably a bit. You mean at that exact point? Or yeah, like in that point in the process, was there a is there is there a lesson that you you learn in that part of the process that you can go back to? It was probably a bit later on than that. But what we did was again minimums was always going to be an issue for us, and we were very. Strap. So what we'd do is we'd have a couple of weeks where we'd sell all right and then we would have sold out the product and then we basically would have to order more but we'd have to wait till we almost sold out the product to be able to afford to order more and kind of grow and it was it probably helped us by not the stock not being available all the time and not kind of sat there so it kind of created that sellout culture right at the very start um but the point was the turning point came quite a little bit later on than that. We played about for quite a while. I say played about, we were taking it seriously, but we were doing very small numbers for the first six months, I think. And it came to Black Friday, and I, I remember we launched some tracksuits on Black Friday, and that was the only thing added to the collection from when we first started. And I can still remember it now. I think it was, we, we had like a 16 grand day. And for starting a company at the time, it was a massive, massive number, like, that was when, in my mind, I thought, wow, this is crazy. Like, I'd never even seen that amount of money at, at the time. Yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah. it was just obscene. So that was when I knew we had something, I suppose. And then from there, we really could, we actually had a bit of capital to be able to, you know, place more and try and do proper orders where we'd have stock in for a lot longer period of time. Yeah, and so many businesses like yours have had, have had those, like, pivotal like brain opening moments on on a Black Friday, haven't they? Where like you know, whether it be like Gymshark, because I think Gymshark had a had a similar type thing where they where they sold a tracksuit and on a Black Friday, and, and they had a big blow up moment as well. So I think I think it's quite pivotal in in especially with with, with clothing brands if they're good like yours, and they, and they've got this c- kind of cult following that they have these massive moments where they kind of realise what they've got. It was was community always something that you actively knew that you had to build from the start? Yeah, I think. At the very start, we, we 
we were probably a lot stronger on it because you know when your team's a lot smaller and it, is, it was just myself and Scott doing everything, you're engaged with everyone. Like we used to speak to all the customers at the very start, like every single one of them. And like even moving on to now, like I'm trying to engage way more now than I ever have done with any of our customers before. Because I think almost now community is more important than it ever, ever has been. I think it's less about products and more about um, the community, about the quality of the garment. But but back then, yes, to answer it, it was it was part of it. And I think there might have been a stage when we probably grow so so quick that we probably lost a little bit of that, if I'm honest with you. And that was probably out of growth and, and not having the time to kind of manage all the different parts and it was a bit of a struggle. Did, when when did you kind of feel that you'd kind of lost it a little bit and then had to get back on track? What what point was that? Possibly um, just after lockdown. And you know what I think a lot of that was is, I do think lockdown was an amazing year for us, but you know when you're... We were quite a social brand, so we'd do a lot of events. Like, um, you know, we'd do like spring summer launch event, and we'd invite some of our customers from our old um, schemes to that, and then also some of our influencers, ambassadors, and obviously the team at the office. And you know, when you're doing a lot of events and you're being very social with everything, when lockdown happened and you had these, you know, really strong sales, but you weren't doing any of these extra things that you were before, I suppose we became slightly unsocial in ourselves because everyone was at home as, as people in general, but then also we were like, do we need to be doing all these kind of extra things? And it was like, almost like we don't need to do all them things, but realistically, maybe you don't need to do all the events and stuff, but the engagement and the community side of the business, I think is one of the most important. We probably lost that for a year. Yeah. And I think that's just because like you say, it's the whole world was becoming antisocial because yeah. of what was going on in the bigger narrative, you know, that you, you can kind of lose connection. But if you, I think the learning that you've just, distilled to the audience there is the fact of like when you when you kind of take your eye off what kind of made you successful you kind of you kind of going down the wrong path so to speak and so you obviously have have bought obviously you've got a shop now and obviously everything's everything's going in person and stuff like that how have you found that has helped the brand and the culture and the fact that people can drop in and, and all that kind of stuff the shop was always um an amazing part when as soon as we opened that i used to spend we opened it on October the 16th, 2018, I think, 2018. And I made a point of working it every evening after being in the office until the Boxing Day. And I remember going on holiday on the Boxing Day. So every night after I finished in the office, I'd go in there because I wanted to understand the customers that were coming in the shop, speak to the customers, get feedback from them all, and just kind of learn how a store works. I thought there was no better way of being of opening a store than the owners being part of it right from the day one. Um, we've got an amazing management team in there now, so I'm not in there all the time now. I still go and check on the store and, and up to date with everything that goes on. But I think it was, especially at the start, very much part of the, um, an important part of the community because we'd have a barber chair in there so people could come and get trims before they'd go on a night's out. They'd get a last-minute outfit. It was, we've got a DJ in there still. We don't have the barber in there anymore, but it was quite hard to manage having you know, separate business inside of business yeah, and, yeah, and different yeah. things like that. But yeah, the DJ's in there. So the atmosphere is great. And again, you get to meet your customers, speak to them face to face. And I think sometimes asking your customers questions is, is invaluable. Well, I've just noticed a big a big trend now in, in brands like yourself going back into retail when they're fully online. You know, you've got Gymshark opening a shop, you've got yourselves opening a shop, you've got other, other big brands opening shops up. 
and obviously it's it's to it's because you want to connect back into that community day you want to see how the fitments are, are fitting on your on your customers in real time and see it i suppose that allows you to see like any changes that you want to make in the variables of your clothing and all that kind of stuff yeah i think at that point obviously you can you can analyze it but on that specific product because it's already out there obviously you can't really tweak it once it's already out but for future yeah it's definitely helpful the main thing though is actually connecting with them and getting genuine feedback and understanding you know if people you could even be down to sizing if people are sizing down on everything or sizing up on everything how is your sizing um because you know online you get a returns form and it's kind of people put too big too small like they just kind of fill in what they want and send it back so i don't necessarily believe your data that you get online is always totally accurate because it you know, people order two of, of one thing, don't they, and send one back sometimes. But the store's great. Um, even when we do store events and different things like that, you get a lot of loyal customers that come to them and kind of want to ask you questions or want to see what's coming out, you know, in the future and things. And we, it's a good way of us actually engaging with the customer and showing them. In regards to when you obviously refining your products and getting your product ready and making this this pattern, is that something you do now completely in-house in and refine how, do you, how are you refining that? Are you- so we've got a full design team in-house. Um, so all our patterns aren't actually in-house. They're all on CAD format. And then obviously the, the CADs with all the specs and everything will get sent to the factories. And then obviously they'll make up the sample. We do sometimes have to tweak some of our samples ourselves in-house, but most of the time we'll make amendments to the spec. Or if, say for example, a sample comes back into us, we measure it against our original spec. If there's anything slightly out, we'll amend that on the spec when we send it back to them. Have you been out to places like China and these factories yourself and visited? Yeah, it's amazing, yeah. I've um, been to them all pretty much over over the years. Sadly, not been out to China recently, uh, but I can't wait to go back out. We used to do a trip um, every December, and I'd do, I'd do it as a, a factory visit trip, but then also an inspiration trip as well, because while I'm over that side of the world, I'll go to South Korea as well, look at a lot of the fashion there, because... It's so far ahead, and you see what South Korea is. Yeah, you see, I, I don't I, you see I, I, some mad fashion. It's, it's, some of it's a bit extreme. Yeah, 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 but you see things that you probably wouldn't see on this side of the world. So it's good to be looking at, you know, products. Like it's the first time I saw like an eight hundred GSM hoodie over there, and like most people in the UK are talking about four, five hundred, six fifty maybe, and then. I bought a hoodie, it was like 800 GSM. It's how thick the fabric is, but you measure it by cutting a little discount, obviously weighing. So you're saying that the quality in South Korea is way better than anything in the West? I'm not saying necessarily the quality is, but they have some garments there that you, you wouldn't ever see over this side of the world. Like, But there is fabric markets there as well, so we were looking in some of the fabric markets there, and, um, and in, yeah, there was some amazing fabrics. So when you're in China as well, they have a Korean market in China. Right. Close from Korea, but they obviously sell them a bit more of a premium over there. So yeah, it's 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 good. But um, we visit Turkey a lot more regularly um, than some of our other factories, so it's a lot easier when it's in Europe. And when it comes to clothing, because obviously I've I've spoken to a lot of clothing brands over over the time, and you know people are getting stuff made in Portugal, Turkey, China, uh, you know Bangladesh, India. Like in your experience, for like for like quality and everything on a level so you get the best quality stuff that you can get what what is what is the best overall to deal with and to and to move through and use as a, as a country and a place to get stuff manufactured i think they have they all have their own challenges i'd say on jersey where um we're actually trying to start sourcing at the moment in portugal just because it is meant to be 
one of the most premium um, places to to produce products. But China as a, as an overall is probably the best because you know it varies from you can get some really high level stuff there. You can kind of like we were discussing before. You can kind of pick what level you want over there. They do a lot more technical products, um, a lot more intricate pieces. The only difference is you've got another battle when it comes to China with the logistical side of it. So bringing the product back to the UK and how long it takes on freight. If you were to air the product, how expensive it is to air the product. Um, but China for actual product quality and across the board, say you're doing jersey and you're doing technical, you're doing outerwear, it's probably the number one for if you're trying to do a full brand overall. Yeah. And what was what was your experience when you got out there and started to see these factories in their full full state of flow i think i was surprised really i think you hear a lot of things about china and and how um grim the factories are and you hear this about you know slave labor and, and that kind of thing but when i went all our factories they're all they're all good factories and we'd looked into them before we'd used them and i was quite impressed with how clean a lot of them actually were and the workforce and how happy the people that worked there were it was quite a lot better than what i expected to be fair like I have over the years when I've just been visiting different countries and visiting like, you know, suppliers that we're not working with, but want to work with us. Some of them are, you know, from the outside, they all look like dives, but then once you get inside the factories, working conditions are quite good. So it's interesting. Cause I think there's a lot of stigma, like you say, around these Chinese factories. And I was speaking to Kian before on a previous podcast about sourcing stuff. And he was saying like a lot of the stuff that you hear about these Chinese factories just isn't, it isn't the case. Like there's, there's loads out there that are really advanced. You can you can get any quality you like out there, and the conditions are genuinely better, yeah, than, better than anything. I'd agree 100% on everything he said. I think that's exactly it. You hear a lot of stuff, and I'm sure there probably, you know, there might be factories out there that aren't the best because it wouldn't have just come from anywhere. But um, from my experience, it was a lot better than what I expected. And when you go over there and, you, and you know, you work with a factory, you create, create a lot better relationship than you would do if, you know, you just sending emails and chatting via WeChat or whichever, if you, you know, whichever platform you speak to them on. So I think it's important for any business to kind of visit factories at points along the line, at least, well, once a year. What, what are your key tips then on building quality relationships with good suppliers and how you, and how you operate and how you communicate with them? I think it's important that you, you work as a team, although they're, you know, they're one team and you're another team. I think for, the future of both businesses, you've got to look at it as kind of a partnership at the end of the day. They're making your product, they're just as reliable. You're, you know, you're the brand, but at the same time, if if it works for them, there's no good sometimes, you know, you always want to get a good price on things, but there's no point hammering someone to the point where it doesn't benefit them if you grow. You want it so if you grow, they grow as well and you're both winning kind of thing. And I think for me, working with our factories and, and suppliers as, as partnerships more so than, you know, they're just a factory of the people that make our clothing. It's the most important thing. And having that personal relationship with them, um, whenever we go to Turkey, for example, you know, we, we always go and see the families of some of the factory owners and things like that. And when he comes over to see us, he brings his, his family with him sometimes. So it's nice, I think, because then you actually get a full understanding of um, the people that you're working with are not just, it's not just purely business all the time. Yeah. I, th- I think, I think that's another thing I've learned on the journey through this podcast when I've interviewed people like yourself is the fact of like the ones that are truly successful and are building brands that last 
the test of time the relationships that they have with the suppliers and how they treat them like humans rather than just like factories pumping out products that that is a that is a big key differentiation yeah 100% agree and also you've got to look at it like for us you know over the over the years there's been you know it's been a roller coaster there's been some years that have been amazing then there was a time when things were tough and if you've got a better relationship with all your factories and things like that, if you did need 30-day payment terms or 60-day payment terms, they're happy to support you because you've been good to them the whole way through. And I think that's what's important, that, you know, you want the best price, but you also want the best working relationship that works for both of you as well. What's been your biggest struggle throughout building this brand over the last seven years? The biggest struggle is possibly being understanding the growth and and again I I wasn't experienced in an online business I wasn't experienced in products I liked it but I wasn't experienced in it um I think the the biggest struggle is is getting data and understanding it and being able to act upon it yeah like for example there's a there's a time and our traffic was massively down we've been told we needed to have an EU site so we set up an EU site paid a lot of money for it and it killed all our organic traffic. What we needed was a subdomain. But yeah. it took us six months to get all our traffic back up to even anywhere near where it was before. So you'd killed your SEO, had you? I, I believe so. Still to this day, it was like we've been advised on it. We'd paid for it with the company that advised us. And it's kind of, we we still think that's what it was because it just went, dro- the traffic just dropped off the end of a cliff completely. It was like we were invisible for a while. And I think now, it's only now when I feel like everything's fully visible again, that we're, you know, everything's performing well, the product's a lot better than it ever has been. So there's a lot of obviously things that have changed. But at that time, I think if I'd had an expert involved, I've saved a lot of money on building a new site that was going to, in effect, kill all our traffic. What's some other data points in your business that you've identified that have a lot of meaning now, but you didn't understand the true meaning of in years gone by? Um, pretty much all of it. I think that, <laughs> <laughs> no, it everything, like Frankie. Everything. Yeah, it is like that, isn't it? When you first start, you don't know a lot of things. But um, I probably didn't understand uh, the implications on, for example, let's go back to China on how much it costs to ship products into the country and being organised. And and if we're to you know put it on a container and it costs us, say for example, forty p versus if you're to fly and it's over five pounds. So I'm looking at a product cost probably years ago and being like, oh, the product cost is good. Yeah, let's fly it in. And I'm probably missing that that little yeah. section there. Scott, my business partner, obviously looks at it a lot more than I do because he's a lot more focused on, you know, logistical side of things, how the business works. He's the MD. I'm more the creative side of the business. But it's only recently that we have become a lot more organised and we're bringing a product in in the right way that we've seen a huge benefit. And it's kind of opened our eyes up to thinking like, wow. How much money have we lost and left on the table by bringing things in in the wrong way? Yeah. And it's even now when you, you know, you plan for certain things, it's taking that into account always. But what's the freight? How long is it going to take to get here? Because obviously after lockdown, the prices went through the roof of even a container, but also not just at the time of how long it took the container to get it went through the roof. Yeah. So years ago, you know, you're getting them 30 days and then, it was, I'm sure it was like nearly three months at one point. So you, we got, granted, some of them got stuck. Yeah, the port that, and yeah. that, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think one of ours wasn't on that, but it was in one of the containers that kind of got affected by it. 
And it was like, you've got all your products sat on there. You can't do anything about it. So then my mindset was, why are we even doing this? You should go back to flying, but not understanding the implications of how expensive flying is. Well, you're literally talking, it's it's like 10 times the cost of flying a garment per garment compared yeah. to landing it for, for, for a shipping container. Yeah, so I think that's one thing that I probably didn't understand. Um, probably earlier on in the business, I probably, one of the most important things for me, and I still stick to this now, is having accurate accounts and management accounts monthly. Because when taking it back to say 2000 are you talking about talking about cash accounts and knowing what you've got coming in and going out is that what you're talking about just general business management accounts so yeah cash accounts but also knowing exactly what you're spending every single month in which area so you know exactly where you're at with your profit because back in 2019 um we're growing rapidly um we had um an fc at the time so not even a financial director there was only a few days a week and again this is me and Scott being slightly unexperienced in the business, but we were listening to everything he said. He was like, yeah, we've made this profit this month. And we weren't looking into the numbers properly. We were kind of relying on someone telling us the right information. And we were overspending massively on marketing. You get to the end of the year, we didn't lose any money, but where we thought we were going to be making loads of money, (laughs) barely made anything. And it was because we were overspending loads of areas because we thought we were making money. So, the fact that now every single number in our business is accurate, you can make the right decisions and you might go, no, we don't need to do that activity this month or we don't need to spend that and you can maintain a lot more profitable business. But I think the numbers are the most important thing and having accurate numbers all the time. So, so then you become a data-driven company rather than someone who's who's just who's just like, oh, you know, I really want to put in 30 grand this month, I really want to put in 30 grand this week into marketing, but not having it driven by any clear data which shows you the return on the investment to what you're putting into the marketing spend yeah some businesses work in different ways as well you know you might have a time sensitive marketing um, activity that you need to do at a certain time but for us i think we try and manage the business a lot more now and try and maintain a profitable business going forward and that's still growing and scaling at the same time i think one of the biggest learning lessons that we've talked about between me and you off the podcast was obviously the, the the deal that came across your table um, that was kind of signed and where you lost a part of the business. And obviously there was a lot of learning lessons in that for you going through that whole trajectory of unsigned deals and all that kind of stuff. So just to give the audience a bit of clarity on that, can you tell them what it was that you went through and how that kind of came about? Yeah, so um, I think it was after our first year in business, um, done about half a million turnover in the first year and we got approached by an agency that you know done had a lot of experience in the in the industry of of wholesaling brands growing brands and they had you know a full design team finance team warehousing everything and, and they pitched us to acquire a percentage of the company um so that we could use all our services because at the time it was just myself and scott doing everything and again because we didn't really know what the brand could be at that time we, we thought it was an amazing opportunity. We're like, wow, we can really grow. And it, and it was a great opportunity, but we um, kind of went, went with the deal. We didn't actually officially sign anything, but committed to it. We worked from their offices, used their design team, did use their factories and warehouse and everything like that. And then grew the company rapidly. However, we'd still not actually signed the deal. Um, and then... Do you remember what the deal... Can you release what the deal was for? 
Yeah, 40% of the company. 40%, yeah. Yeah, so it's for 40% of the company. So it's obviously a large amount of the company. It's not majority or anything like that, but it's still a large amount. And by this point, two years later, they were in a position where their company was struggling and JD Sports bought them. So we were then in a position where JD Sports owned us or 100% of our business. And we had to sign the deal at that point. The difference is when we signed the deal... I think we were turning over nine million. I think at the time. So versus if we'd initially signed a deal from the day dot, it probably would have been the normal thing to do. We probably should have done. I don't know why it never actually got signed. But I think when you're then giving away a percentage at a later date, when you know your value's a lot more, and not for a financial figure. Do you know what you were turning over roughly when when you, when you initially would have signed that deal? I think it was we'd just done half a million in the first year, so tiny compared to. To, to the nine million that you that you had to do, yeah. It. So I think, um, but the good thing is when that happened, obviously we were working with JD Sports, and I learned an awful lot about the business, the shop. They helped us with the shop. So when we initially set up the Trafford Centre store, no one really of our size brands was doing that kind of thing, and it was probably one of the first brands to take a risk and do it and they really helped us and supported us with that with the introduction to Trafford Centre um, and helped us with negotiating out the rates and different you know different things like that we learned a lot from them I think they gave us a lot of good information on getting your numbers right and that's when we really started to understand that side of things um, but recently we've just um, acquired that percentage back so Super excited now, myself. Con- and, congratulations, bro! Thank you, mate. Yeah, myself and Scott now on one hundred percent. And how's that feel for you? Like, because I can, I can see, I can see from from the other side of this mic that like you kind of feel like you kind of. Re- I feel like relieved. Do you know what it is? It's it's super exciting. Someone asked me this the other day, and it's not a case of um, JD were great business partners, and you know I can't fault them for any, anything like that. But it's it's like it sounds crazy, but it's like you have got your baby back, and I know I've been. The last six months, I've been turning every stone upside down, really working on everything in the brand. I'm really trying to elevate the product, elevate the marketing. Um, just, it's been the main word inside our business has just been elevation. How do we give more value, um, produce better products? How do we make our marketing another level compared to what it used to be before? And I, f- I suppose it kind of gives me a new lease of life. Like I feel so much more passionate about everything that we're bringing out, everything that I'm doing. Um I just love it, yeah. Did, did, did it kind of feel then at some point that like you were going to work for someone else at, at a certain point? I, I don't even know why, but yeah, it did, yeah. Because, they, you know, all we had, all we, we did with JD really was a management account at the end of, the, of each month, and that was it. So it's not like they, they made me feel like that, that was, but it just internally I must have felt like that. Yeah. And I think there was part, of it, there, there was little pressures of like, Let's. You need to grow the company, grow the company, build more structure. Um, it made me feel we thought we had to be more corporate. Um, kind of probably lost a little bit of who we were in that. And I think there's a point along the journey where we, you know we employed a commercial director, and I think this is quite important for the listeners. Like at that point, I really didn't have any belief in myself of like, right, I need to get all these experts in all these different areas, and then you know everything will be right you forget that when you've been in a brand from day one, you are probably the most educated on that brand out of anyone. Like, as soon as the commercial director didn't quite work out, and 
we went our separate ways in the end. But since I've kind of been fully focused on everything I'm doing in the business, I've given me all my confidence back to make the right decisions and everything like that. But I thought the right thing to do was have experts everywhere and kind of devaluing myself so much. But realistically, I probably still am one of the most valuable people in our company. Mate, talking about key hires... Can you give me a bit of an understanding on, on on at what points and what key hires need to be in place for these brands so the audience understands what they need to grow? I think there's probably... Uh, it, it, do you know what's really hard? It depends on the person that's setting all the brand skill set because you get some people that are amazing at graphics or amazing at products or things like that. But I do think key hires initially is e-com manager especially if it's an e-commerce business, just having someone with that technical skills because I think information from a technical side on e-com is a lot harder to figure out than anything else. I think common sense can get you so far, but when it comes to e- the e-com world, like, it's hard. Like Digital ads, everything that comes along along with it. I think a merchandise is important about... So the e-com manager is also a media buyer? Yeah. At that stage, if you're starting out a company, they'll be in charge of... You know, your, your Facebook ads, TikTok ads, YouTube ads. So what, what kind of revenue number do they need to be at before they need to focus on bringing on that e-com manager, do you think? 500? Yeah, I, I, think, I think anything over the 250 marks when you've got to start looking at, you know, you're not just playing about anymore. It is, it is a business and you, you've got scope to be able to invest in people. And I don't think you necessarily need to go super high level right from the off and have like a head off. It's kind of like you can start with someone just specialising in that um, and just focusing on that area while you focus on what your strongest are. And when you hit one to two mil, what 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 should you be bringing in at that point? Need a merchandiser, I think. So, you know, controlling how much product you're buying, when you're buying it, the critical path. Um, looking at all that side of things because I think that's when it gets challenging and you know, if you just kind of freestyle, you don't have a plan of when products coming in or when it's releasing, how much you've backed it, what the numbers behind it, why why are there numbers behind it, what's the reasoning for why you might have put certain numbers behind a certain product and not another. And who are you bringing on at two, at two to five? You need someone in the finance department, definitely. Right. Okay. So you're talking like a, a CFO. Yeah, or even even just a financial director or um, financial controller, probably at an earlier stage in that, just so that you know your numbers are are correct. And this is because the key leaks at that stage, I believe, are on over over purchasing of product because you don't have the the product person in place, yeah, and the buyer in place, and also lead times on products and having too much cash invested in certain elements of the business, which leaves you open on other ends am i correct in that yeah well i believe so yeah i think everything you just said there's pretty true in the fact that it's quite easy to not understand all them three parts and kind of over leverage it at least the econ person as well can report back on traffic and realistically analyze the data on that to see how many people are coming they'll help work out the numbers for merchandise people which will then finance they can work as a little triangle and and just because I just because I really want to understand this myself as well, but like, what uh, was it? Was it like was the ten million point? Was that the point that's the really hardest ceiling to break through and to kind of move beyond? Or what? What is that? What is that breaking point where things start to where you, you where you really have to evolve as a, as a, as an entrepreneur to be able to break through and accentuate through through that through that revenue number? 
Yeah, I, I think, like we said before, I think when you get to 10, it's then, and you see it with a lot of brands, you hit 10 or around 10 and then you plateau for a bit, kind of a bit of figuring out what's going on and understanding it all. And then probably two years later, you see another spike again. Is it a new paradigm? Is that what it I is? I think so. I think it's where you enter the realms of, of like a, you need some serious key members in your team to kind of help you take that level unless you're very very good business owner that knows the ins and outs of pretty much everything it it's it's so so when you got to that 10 what what were the thoughts that came into your mind okay, okay right we're 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 we've missed something here here and here i think when i first got to, to 10 i thought we were over the moon <laughs> <laughs> and that's yeah. been totally honest myself and scott both admitted this on you know when we spoke to other people before when we started the brand we probably didn't realize it would ever get to being anywhere near as big as it is now and I think you know you get to that point of imposter syndrome like what I was talking about before so we need to hire a lot of key people to kind of help us grow and I think we probably built too much structure which meant the company went a little bit too corporate and a lot less fun yeah and there's a happy medium there isn't there I think that's the most important thing but one thing that I would say that's been a positive about all the people we've hired over the years is I'm working with JD's I've built on my skills a lot and I know Scott's built on his skills massively as well. So you become a lot better at the things that you are stronger at because you've been working with better people. So although they might not have worked out and they might not be right for the company, you've taken little bits from each person and developed yourself as well. How how did you and Scott initially align your values and know that you you know that you both were aligned in the value sense so that you could go into business together? We didn't actually, we kind of always just got on and you never know until you actually get into business with someone. But we kind of aligned in the fact that we were very different. So I was all creative side and that kind of side of the business and Scott was a lot more of the business side. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why it works so well is because we both have the same goal, but two totally different ways of getting there. Yeah, and you could just you could just see from day one that you knew how to style the clothing, how to create the clothing, how you wanted the clothing to look, and he knew how to get it to market, get it to sell, all the back end stuff, control the numbers, all that kind of stuff. So you could just focus on being creative. And I think that's it. So how we work, and and although we do split completely separate, we soundboard off each of them pretty much everything, just to get for communication as well. So we both know always what's going on on both sides, but. We're like best friends like that. So everything that we're doing, we'll still let each other know just so that just to get that sounding board. And I think that's one of the strongest things about when you have a business and you have a business partner and you get on and it works well, is that you've always got that. Whereas I think I look at some of these people that have a business by themselves and I think fair play because they've not got anyone to bounce it off. Yeah. And and yeah, you're right. I think that if you don't have like there's been a few people I've had on here that have been creatives that have lost a lot of money and lost a lot because they didn't understand the other sides of the business and the other elements they needed within it. And I think the benefit that you had from day one was like, even though Scott perhaps wasn't a CFO standard of financial, at least you had some control on it because he was looking at it more yeah. than you were potentially. hundred percent. And he, and he was, you know, it's kind of, you both growing over the years. And, and like I said before, we've had a roller coaster. It's been a learning experience the whole way through we've probably made every mistake there is to make but the best thing about it is we're still here 
the business is performing better than it ever has done. And it's kind of like every one of their mistakes that we've made, we've learned from, or at least, you know, we can help give advice on them and different things like that. How have you worked through your this imposter syndrome? Um, I think it was more a case of knowing that it took a while to be fair. It was a point probably about a year ago when um, it was a struggle. Sales weren't weren't amazing, and I really wanted to focus back down to the products and where it started from. And I was sitting with the design team and I was like I really want to clean everything up it might not work but I want it to be more like what I want to wear again like what we did at the start don't not necessarily always looking at data 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 and kind of letting data lead every decision like being forward thinking with everything like we want to want to bring this out I started with with cleaning everything up and kind of taking a lot of the big branding off because it wasn't stuff that I'd really wear myself right so you went back to my true beliefs and I think it was more of a test of if it works, I back myself. If it doesn't work, then I'm no worse off than the position we're in now. And we did a lot of work on the product and I was really keen on, um, you know, improving any qualities that we possibly could do, improving trims, making everything better and more just being what I wanted the brand to be again. And we started seeing it reacting and doing well and that kind of gave the team a massive boost as well gave me a boost which meant I believed in my my opinion again of like yeah no I think that's cool and it sells and I think that's kind of where it it started to go and also I think when things go well you can and and you analyze why they've gone well you can then start doing it again and kind of focusing on you know how do we keep doing that all the time so so had you gone to more of the big it's like the the big brand logos and all this kind of stuff because other people in the marketplace had potentially and you'd kind of gone well that's the way the world's going so we kind of fell down that trap too is that kind of what happened <laughs> a bit of that but then also a bit of say for example we brought a t-shirt out did it and it, with a large graphic did amazing we you know we'd have a big a big team in and it'd be like right we need more of them yeah i see it see another t-shirt comes out with a big graphic on does amazing we need more of them Next thing you know, you've got loads of T-shirts with big graphics on and then they eventually stop selling a little bit or slow down on sales and I'm looking at a new release thinking, do I... Is that me? Yeah. that me? Yeah, do I really believe every single one of these products? Do I want to rush in a warehouse to get one of every single one of these products to wear? And I commit now, uh, there was a point when um, it probably wasn't. Yeah. But then as soon as we made that change, that now... I'm I'm fully back involved in all um, all design things with the design team. We're happy with all the product we're bringing out. We get excited about every single launch. The launch is performer, and it's like finally bringing. It's like a new lease of life, if you get me. And it could have quite easy and easily been not the case, but that was because we were looking at data too much and not going off necessarily opinion. What you what you wanted to do. The only way I can describe that as what it sounds like to me is it sounds like. The, just take the beautiful girl on Instagram that's posting loads of photos in a bikini, right? It's not all of her, but 
but because she's posted and she gets the engagement on that photo, it just feeds into posting more of the same content because that's what got the engagement. But it's not. But you've evolved as a human, and you don't really want to post that content anymore. But that's you got trapped into a cycle, and that's kind of what's what's kind of happened with your clothing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly that, isn't it? And and I think when we we decided to make the changes. And we saw an immediate reaction, obviously, like everything in Cloven, we're working six, six, 12 months in advance. So I was doing a lot of that work a year ago now. But at the time when I was doing the work, you're not getting the rewards yet. So it's like we're plugging away, plugging away, plugging away, and then start to see it towards the end of last year, really start picking up again. It was like, this is amazing. And then that was when we made a decision, you know, let's, let's buy this company back because I know what the future is going to be like for us now. I, because you could I, see it now. I could see it. No one else could see it. Like the internal team could see what we were, we were doing for this year and we could see what we're doing for next year nearly. And it's like, I could see that. And I know we we're coming off not an amazing year, not terrible year, but not an amazing year. And it's like, we were coming off that and we're like, now's the time. Because I know what the future is going to be for us because I can put everything on it. So, so you'd, so just to, because I, I want to get this real clear so that everyone understands it and I understand it, but like you'd, You'd let data take you away from your internal creativity. I would, I'd still do work on a lot of stuff, but when it got to the stage where we had what I thought was experts in each different area of business, and I was kind of overseeing things rather than necessarily being involved in every single thing, there'd be a percentage of the business, yeah, that data would kind of take over from, and I'd feel like I didn't have a voice to say, even though I was a business yeah, owner, yeah, even though yeah. I was the founder, I didn't have the voice to kind of go, I've employed you, but I'm going to disagree with everything you say and do this. And that was probably a self-confidence issue that. Do you, could, could you then sort of, obviously as you evolve as a brand, you have to use certain points of data just because of the numbers of revenue that yeah. you're turning over, right? There's no, there's no, there's, that you can't disregard that when you turn over 50 mil, you have to use data points that, that brands at one, two, three mil aren't going to be using. You just have to do it because the economies of scale and the way that you're manufacturing, yeah. right? But could you say you say you're designing a 10 piece collection? Could you say, do you know what? Um, five pieces are going to be designed off the data points that we have to do in the business and five pieces are going to be of, from my full creative flow and kind of do it like that as well from, from, and balance the collections like that. Yeah, of course. I think is that's a, that's a great way of looking at it as well. But then also I think it's just always using data or looking at the data, but just evolving it as well. So what, so not letting it affect your creativity. So we know we need this, but I'm going to do it in this way. Can you talk me through your creative process in, into how you design a garment? Is it, is, it, is it you locked in a room with a, with a blank piece of paper and, and, you, and then you take inspiration? Do you start with a, with a vision board of colours, of fabrics, and then, and then create that into a piece? Or how do, how do you kind of evolve it? We do, there's a lot of different stages of it, to be fair. And because we work on monthly drops, we'll do pre-planned monthly drops. Right? Yeah, granted, there is a little bit of a change in there. But... Inspiration for me doesn't always necessarily come from actual clothing. It can come from all different areas like music, album covers, anything different like that. Um, but we use WGSN. I'm sure a lot of people um, in the fashion industry know about it anyway. It's kind of the Bible of fashion. So What was that you said you used? WGSN. Right, WGSN. And there's, there's a few different variations, so different companies that do a similar thing, but that's like Trends for 2024 be on there so it'll talk you through fashion experts talking about all the different trends so from color palettes and different things you'll probably notice that when you look at designers 
they all seem to drop the same club hearts at the same time, things like that. And it's no kind of coincidence it comes from, obviously, WGSN or they dictate to WGSN, which dictates it down. Really? I, d- I did not, I yeah, did not so have a clue about it's that. It's a platform. I think it's around £10,000 a year. Um, but most, I'd say probably eight. So, so, so there's one major outlet that picks the colour palette for the world of clothing. I don't know if they actually, you don't have to listen to it. Like I don't listen to it a lot of the times. And that's why now I'm going back to what I feel like I want to bring out and things like that. But that's more for the high street, surely. Yeah, the high street. But then again, high street's led from designer, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I've never even considered that. I, I, I mean, thinking back now, I, d- I did wonder why like Zara would be doing the same colour palette as H&M. In, in terms so of all that. when you look at you know you, huge designer brands as well you go and you can see what colors they're all they're all very similar but all if, if there's a pop color one season they'll all have that color at some part in some part of the collection well I, I don't necessarily think it's from that but that is a tool that a lot of people use um we we have it but i don't look at it as much as I, I ever used to when I was, I was I found it quite interesting more than anything because I'd look at it get the information but then I'd still kind of do what I wanted to do but I might might be implements of it I might use a colour in a graphic print yeah or or anything like that um but yeah I I look at a lot of designer catwalk shows like I said music album colours I tend to what I do a lot of the time though is go back in years now more than ever so like I'll look back at the 90s or and sit and see what's coming back round. Yeah, because, for example, like, you know, when the Kanye West documentary came out, there was like a cobalt bomber jacket they had on there, a cobalt leather bomber jacket, and I was like, I guarantee you loads of people will be bringing it out. And then Prada brought out all the big, oversized, bright colour bomber jackets. Kind of, and you know, you can kind of follow what years you're in from back in the day. It, so I look at things like that more, so things that are, you know, history more than... Like what's out there right now? Who who are some of the like your biggest inspirations in terms of designers that kind of break the mold and kind of give you a bit of a sense of like you know I want to I want to f- forge a path like they did. I think Mike Amiri's got to be one of the best ones, probably only because he was an independent for so long. Um, and I, I actually I actually messaged him the other day. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that interests me. I think you've got to look at people like Pharrell. Um, you know, one of the coolest people that has been in the game. He's not aged. Still not aged. I, um, I actually think he's a CGI illusion, mate. I don't think he's a human. Like he, that, that guy's, what is he, 55 or something? It's got to be, but he looks he, the same. He, looks, he looks like he's 22. Yeah. I think a lot of the American, um, American side of things like that, but... You've, you've obviously got to look at Kanye, whether you disagree with some of the stuff that he does, but he is a bit of an icon in the fashion world and the, the stuff he's done, but just a little bit crazy out there. Has has becoming a dad changed a lot in your life in the way that you see things and, and the way that you move in business and the way that you balance stuff? Yeah, massively. I think for me, it was, a, um, it was probably a bit of a struggle for the first six months. He's trying to manage life. Um, you know, like not being able to give 100% of work, not feeling like I was giving 100% at home, traveling back and forth all the time. I think that was one of the things that I found the most challenging was um, I live about an hour and a bit away from work. So being fully present when I'm at home and being fully present when I'm at work, I think I found that really hard. But now I feel like I've got a perfect balance of of how, how I do it. And I think 
what kicked that off was training again, giving myself that time. Like I've trained since I was 14, pretty much consistently my whole life and probably stopped the last few years just because stopped. I stopped. Yeah, probably because I felt like, well, not stopped, but I mean, nowhere near to the level I used to train at, yeah. if you get what I mean. Um, and it's probably only this last, say, six months I've started training hard again, like properly training. That, and it's just transformed everything, you know, and it kind of, when I'm in work, I'm 100 miles an hour, but like on the right thing, fully focused, clear-minded. And then when I leave work, I go home, I can spend that two-hour time with my little boy where I'm fully giving him everything. He goes to bed. I could jump back on my laptop, do anything else I need to, spend time with my wife. And I think it's just, it gives you that clarity. And I think that's one thing that I've probably been missing for a while where I felt like I was like getting woken up by a little boy, obviously, Great, but he wakes you up. So I felt like I was on catch-up mode from the second I got up of the day. Yeah. And I think that was what was hard. I think it was starting that off because he wakes up super early, sometimes like five. But I felt like I was always chasing my tail the whole day. But then getting that time in the gym, it almost like levels you out for the day. When you become a dad, does it give you a whole new re- renewed purpose? Um, I can talk, Yeah, I can talk about this now. Like It didn't at the start didn't for a long time but then now it has yeah massively again probably the last six months as you see him going you can almost interact things like that at the very start I found it probably quite hard because you can't interact like you can you're just there to help and that's about it but then as soon as you see a little smile yeah it gives you a different purpose yeah because I suppose as a dad you kind of feel a bit useless don't you for the first six or eight months yeah like I mean um my wife didn't breastfeed we we did bottles so I could help a lot more than what a lot of other dads do. But you are pretty... Well, you're both... You're just trying to keep them alive. Yeah. It's pretty important, uh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah that, I think that's the main thing, that you just try and do that. <laughs> and, um, but, yeah, I think for me, I, some people say, like, the life changed the second, you know, the son or the daughter was born, but it took a bit longer for me. And I don't no, think, that, I, I I think love there's anything that. wrong with that. I think that's just... it's. And the more and more people I open up to about that agree with me and go, you know, I was the same. I just didn't want to say that. Yeah, because people, because people like feel awkward about saying it, but it's something, something good to talk into. But how from from a from a man from a man that's trying to smash business and smash life and trying to take himself to the next level, how important has it been for you to have a supportive partner along that journey that's kind of facilitated the other side of things? Yeah, it's massive, um, and she, and. She, she is great. I think that's, if you didn't have, you know, someone supportive at home, I do think it would be a big struggle. I think it would almost be better having no one than having someone that's not supportive at home. Yeah. Because then you've got nothing, you've got no expectations. Have you, you just got to do what you've got to do and go full steam with it. But, um, you know, I'm very fortunate that, that Dan can be there for Mason a lot of the time. I can be focused on work. Granted, we do, I still do a lot of stuff at home and things like that as well because I want to. Like at my weekends, I want to spend every single second with him. I want to do, take him out, I want to take him swimming. Like when he gets to the stage, he wants to play football, play sports, or do everything he wants to do. Um, but, you know, to hold the house down while I'm at work and, and you know, look after me when I need anything or support, it's massive. Yeah, mate. You, you must feel sorry for someone like me coming into this dating world. No, you have fun. <laughs> I don't know about that, mate. I don't know about that. But no, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of, I suppose it kind of chills you out, doesn't it? Like a lot of this stuff, it kind of 
brings you more into a, into alignment. Do you know what? I honestly think if, if, you know, if I wasn't married, I'd be a madman. I'd just be obsessed to the point where I don't think I would ever stop working. If I was totally by myself, I think I just would be 24 hours every day. It gives you a reason to, to slow down, gives you a reason, a purpose to kind of, you know what? No, I want to take her out or I want to look after Mason. But if I didn't have them reasons, I feel like how passionate I am about the business right now, I just wouldn't stop. I'd seven days every week, mate. Like all day, every day. See, this is the thing about, and you know, you know how passionate I am about this, right? And everything, and how much it lights me up. And we were talking about it on the walk and before the podcast. But I'll turn. I like you get. I'm, I might some some woman might come into my life, and she might want to go on a date, and I'll be like, turn it down because I'm thinking about the podcast. I know it sounds weird, but it's just when you're on purpose. It's really hard to have anything whatsoever take you off your path for your vision yeah it is it is hard i think it's yeah so what's 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 your advice i think you've kind of got a for me i'm fortunate i don't see my my you know the control club as a business i see it as like a lifestyle really it's part of my life it's ingrained in it's part of my wife's life it's part of everything that we do, but I do think it's important to make time. It's like sometimes you think you've got stuff you need to do, but you don't but really you, need you, to do it then. you create it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, I think they're the moments when it's like, for example, I was sat down on my laptop last night and I was working through loads of stuff, looking at, you know, little bits of, of information. And I'd, I'd done what I needed to do when I first sat down on my laptop for. I was like, I don't need to, go into a rabbit hole now. Like, so I'm not going to, but you know, when you start looking at things and analyzing data from past years and looking at different, different things like that, it's like, you can quite easily spend hours and hours doing it, but I didn't need to go into it at that exact point. So I kind of shut my laptop after I'd done what I actually needed to get done and then sat down and spent a bit of time with my wife instead. But it's kind of weighing up. Is it immediate? Does it need acting on straight away? Like how long is it going to be? Do I need to specify, like, make some specific time for it in my normal day today? And and how important is it that you do it right there, right then? Yeah, which which I think is all is all good points. And I just, but there's something about having a successful brand like you do and that you're building and balance that just don't go together. That just never will go together. Like people talk about balanced life. I don't think that anyone who has something as successful as what you're doing or who, or who has a podcast in the top 0.1%. I don't think they truly ever have balance. The balance has to be skewed in the way of the brand or the podcast, doesn't it? Yeah, I think you're probably right. There. I was going I was just going to say like if you were to ask my wife, she'd probably say that like I am on work a lot. Like I work probably a lot more than I think that I do. If you get me. Yeah, because cause like you you think that sitting on the sofa at home looking at colour palettes for a collection isn't work. Yeah. Because you're just because because you enjoy it, right? But then t- t- potentially to to your wife, that's probably taking you away from a conversation with her. You just don't know it at the time. Yeah. So you kinda you kinda get trapped in it, can't you? Yeah, and it's like even little things like I'll be having a conversation with her and asking her about some of the clothing and asking about different details and things like that and but you think it's just a normal conversation, but it's around work again. Yeah. Like if I was, if I was actually to cut out everything that I speak about, that is 
to only nothing control club, then I'm you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have nothing to talk about. <laughs> no, but, I, would, I would I would prefer, but I know it takes a lot of takes up a lot of her life as well. I was I was listening to a podcast the other day with Alex Homozi, and he was talking about his relationship with Layla and how they and how they talk about business and they, and they they've got their different roles and it's just it's just their whole life is all about business and that because but he says there's nothing wrong with that because that's what they fucking love and that's what they enjoy and that's what brings them that's what he likes he he likes to just work 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 until he can't work no more and then he likes to go and watch some netflix recharge his batteries go for, go to the movies with his wife and then just that's it you know so it's, it's like you kind of like if, if that's what you love then do that yeah i think that's what it is it's like you either you know there's there's a lot of different things you, you, if you want to go away on a holiday you want you want nice things in life you've got to work hard or you know be successful in some some way shape or another to be able to do that and i think you know part of the sacrifice of being able to do some of the things like that is probably not having the most balanced life and you know having strong purposes in an area you mentioned uh, uh, f- further back in this podcast about there was a time there obviously when you were going when you when you wanted to like go in the into the brand and refresh it in terms from a creative direction you said that you said that you weren't happy with some of the numbers you were seeing on the back end in terms of like the revenue that we're doing what was what were some of the things then that you kind of because it wasn't it's that the revenue wouldn't have just been affected by creative there would have been other things data wise that are on the back end of that what what kind of things did you identify as were the, were the key things that were killing those revenue numbers and how did you boost them back up so you so just take back which point you're meaning to because it wouldn't when you're saying the revenue you mean yeah you, you said you said there was a point there when it went when when you when you weren't happy with the growth in terms of like the revenue number you weren't happy with with the growth on the back end, and you kind of you kind of went in there and said, "Right, let's start from a clean slate again." When I kind of went back into the yeah. collection, I wasn't happy with it. Yeah, so it wasn't necessarily down to the revenue numbers; it was more just the direction of which the brand was going. Um, but on the back end, I've been looking at, for example, on a launch, we've been looking at hit rates. To so say we launched a certain amount of products, how many of them products reached the sell through that we wanted to reach through in that period, um, analyzing stuff like that, and then kind of is our collection too big? Are we launching? because we do launch every month, are we launching too many products in each launch? Are six of them performing amazingly and some of them not? Like kind of monitoring them kind of things and looking for consistencies across all the different ones. How do you how do you keep yourself as a more premium brand and a brand that doesn't have to go on sale as much? Well, I think that's one thing that we we probably had problems with in the past and, and one of the bits of work that we've been doing massively on the last, you know, the last few months is is really kind of giving value, giving quality. But I think what we did is gave away so much value that it devalued the brand in the past. You know, we were doing discounts for loyalty customers all the time and different things like that. And it kind of meant that the loyalty customers, almost a lot of them, only watched shop when it was on discount. So we kind of... You created your own death. Yeah, we really did. And I think, um, you know, we'd have... It almost it knocks onto everything that you do, so... We really wanted to kind of come away from that and we believe in the product and we believe in, you know, the quality and the value and that it's priced accordingly. And I think that shows now that, you know, I've got friends that have got T-shirts that from when we first launched the brand, and that was when our quality is nowhere near as even good as it is now. So if a T-shirt's lasting seven years and people have still got it and wearing it, then it's it's good. But we've improved a lot since then. Um 
But I think it's about consistency. So we've really come away from a lot of them flash sales and a lot of discounts that we were doing because... We, shows scarcity, doesn't it, as a brand? Yeah, but I think, again, it's like we were looking at things so wrong at times. You know, we wanted to chase turnover. We wanted to hit this number because we thought... You so, know, like, the ego part came in. Massively, yeah. And I think it was a lot to do with that corporation kind of thinking, you've, you know, you've got to keep growing on your turnover, keep growing. So setting forecasts that were always a stretch, like rather than being realistic on what can we do if we didn't do a single sale all year and we just sold our products at full price. like, And obviously adding different activities from that. But I think we were pushing ourselves too hard, chasing the turnover, forcing ourselves to do sales when we didn't need to. How did you get, like how far down the rabbit hole do you go in terms of like getting granular on knowing your customer? I think there's a lot of work we can still do on it. Um, we do a lot of Q and A's and different things. Like that. In the past we've done like workshops where we spoke to a lot of customers. Again, we have the store side of things, but there's always more that we can do. I think that's one thing that we really want to develop in our business is adding that community element. So someone actually focus fully on community. And with that, we'll probably involve them a lot more in, not necessarily the design process, but before pre-releases, showing the collection, a lot of information about the products, just kind of really involve them and ask questions along the journey. But do you think that, when I say granular, do you go, okay, the, the, the guy that's wearing the Couture Club is between the ages of, say, 18 and 30, he's earning X amount per year? Yeah, so we, we built four customer profiles last year, um, named them all, put their interests down, what they were, on that, I think there's, we need to update them. There's been probably a change. So there's two of them, four are more what we're looking at now and what's kind of the sales are kind of saying, yeah, it's more that kind of person. Yeah, and then you just you just work on refining and getting closer and yeah, closer do, to that. I do really want to have, you know, two customer profiles, a men's and a female profile that we believe is like, almost bang and I think it's very important for the business going forward for the future um but yeah like I said on the ones we've got now we've noticed that it's, it's not necessarily what we thought and as we've done more work on obviously quality of the products and up, up the marketing um and everything like that we've noticed that it's, it's tended to push more towards one of the profiles than we thought yeah, and and was that was that something you didn't foresee in terms of like were you thinking it was another profile yourself um, the profile that it's ended up is the profile that it almost was when we started. Which so you've come full circle, yeah. Which is interesting because that makes me think that that's the profile to go forward with. Well, a hundred percent it is because that's why you designed the brand in yeah, the first place, and and that's what gave you the most passion and purpose, right? A hundred percent. I think it's like you see it a lot with brands. I think when you hit like we're go, it'll be our eighth um, anniversary at the end of May, and I think you hit that point as around six, seven years of probably where it is all a little bit crazy, where you're kind of wondering, how do we get to the next level? We'll try this, we'll try this. And you might lose a bit of your identity. And I think that's possibly what happened with us, but I really believe we've found it now. And, you know, the team that we've got going forward, super strong. The product we've got going forward, super strong. The, you, the purpose, everything. Do you study a lot of these luxury brands and how they position, how they price and how they get um, other people to to talk talk about their products and and almost talk other people into buying their products to fit in. I probably used to a lot more 
the last 12 months, I've just focused so much probably on our own business because I wanted to get everything right. I didn't want any distractions from elsewhere. I didn't want to look at any other brands to see what they were doing. I just wanted to look at what we were doing and do everything right, what we wanted to. But there is a lot more analysis that I probably need to do looking at, you know, the designer landscape and how the best people out there do it. But at the same time, I do believe it's like stay true to your mission and kind of focus on yourself. Got have the information, but don't be kind of led too much by it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. Because obviously, you don't want to get taken too much down the track of what others are doing. But the the one thing I love about luxury is the fact of like that the way that they position the brand allows such a mad profit margin on it. Yeah, it's because, insane. Be, be, it's insane. because you in, because you encapsulate because they don't go on sale. They 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 build a product that means something to so many people. Whether it's for the right or wrong reasons, psychologically you've attached it to something. Um, I think if you if you can psychologically get your brand attached to more of that luxury echelon, you, you you can increase your profit margin too. Yeah, I think for me there's probably a lot of a lot of folks that I do need to look at the real high end luxury because I do take you know the, the, there's a lot of amazing details that they produce and things like that. So I think it's important you know in any brand that's wanting to elevate to see how the best in the world do it. Well, there, there perhaps isn't any difference between, say, your product quality and a high-end luxury product quality, but the, the only difference being is the, per- is the perception to the person who's buying the product of how that product, of how they think that product will make them feel, look, and be perceived by society. And that's, and that's the psychology piece in it that, that I think if you, put your, if you put the psychology piece into clothing brands, I think that's where, that's where you go from like, okay, well, boom. Yeah. to the hype to 50 million to 150 200 million but like your profit margin has gone way up because of the price you charge yeah without a doubt and i think again brand the name on on everything is that the reason that there's a price for it is because they've done all that work for year after year after year and built these amazing brands that people you know are so invested in that even when things go on resale people pay like four or five times the amount on yeah. resale for some of these brands it's insane insane but i know you've you've used influencers in the past and i know it's something you're you're very experienced with and we were talking about it on our walk before this about how the landscapes has completely changed from influencers and the way that brands can use them now what are some of the things that you've noticed over your time that have massively changed in that space and how you use them i think the gone of the days of where you know someone would post for you put a discount code on and you you know you'd have a 20 grand sales come through their code or anything like that i don't think things work like that anymore um but there was a time when it was pretty insane like that um for me now for us the main focus is things being a lot more organic now rather than everything you know being paid a lot of the people that work with control club now have been working with us probably for five years so they've been part of the brand along the way and it's not a kind of you know they're not really being paid to wear it they wear the brand because they're passionate about it yeah um and again, there's you know there's a lot of people recently that have started wearing the brand again, with, and that's purely out. Molly May recently, congratulations! <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, and again, totally organic. So that's that's the direction that I want to take the brand going forward. And again, I think it's it's better. It's what it's about anyway. And if if we start bringing out you know higher quality clothing and better better clothing, then you're going to get more and more of that because that's that's what you want. As a brand, do you actively work with positioning your pieces with um, like these these p- 
people that like fashion dressers that dress these celebrities as well. So I have a few stylists that will message for, you know, for example, it might be a shoot for a magazine and they'll be like, I've got this artist for the shoot. Can you send these stuff? Cause I want to style them in it for the shoot. So I get that quite um, often, but then a lot of the time you don't actually see much from it. And, but then the odd time you can. And I think that's the kind of, you've got a willing to take the risk that, you know, you might not see anything back and then every one in 10, you might get someone huge wear it and it's amazing. Yeah, because obviously I, I look at these, I look at these brands that like obviously get on P Diddy and stuff like that, and it's it's literally only a st- you're only a stylist away from getting your brand on these big people and these big people wearing it, aren't you? Essentially, you know, only ever one stylist away. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly it, and I think it's about creating them relationships with the right people, and you know, showing the brand in the right way to them people that can really make that happen. Yeah, and what do you kind of see now as the ultimate vision for you in the next 12 to 24 months with what you're trying to create with the brand, the revenue numbers that you want to hit, like, and everything like that? I think this year is mainly the, the main focus for this year is, is about um, is growth, but stable growth that we're happy with. So mainly on profit and get, get the business really profitable again. Um, we're doing a lot of organic sales in america we've started our digital ads over there and i think the brand's starting to pick up a lot more traction in the states than ever has so for me over the next two years there's a big piece on you know elevating and moving the brand into probably an entry-level luxury space um a lot of work on internationalizing the brand more so so actually being a strategy behind it rather than it just organically people in america wearing it or people in europe or australia wearing it I think actually having a strategy behind territories is important for us and and actually to make the brand a true global brand. How do you strategize around getting a brand to have penetration in a certain space? So for argument's sake, if you're going into Australia, would you approach it along the terms of like, okay, we're going to penetrate into Sydney market or penetrate into a Melbourne market and kind of dominate one city and get people wearing it so that it catches on across the whole country? Is that how you position it with a brand like that i think like i said this this is probably a lot of work for us to do on this but i think it's important to at least try and understand it i think probably a large city by city approach would be quite would would make sense but the problem is the the power now with ads the influence that people have is they have such an international following anyway that you could think well it's, it's not a problem it's a good thing where you can think you just penetrate and say, for example, Melbourne. Yeah. But then people, the main people in Melbourne have got followings all around the world anyway. So if you were to make that much noise in that one place anyway, probably... You're going to sp- get a spin-off, yeah. Yeah, you're going to get a spin-off, so it's going to be a bonus. Um, but in terms of getting into, in, getting into the local culture of people seeing your brand out there, I suppose you'd, you'd take a city-by-city city approach, wouldn't you? Yeah, I think you'd have to. I just think unless you were taking a massive investment and you were going to you know, invest it all heavily into a huge campaign, I think you'd have to go city by city anyway. So you, are you just literally going to go over to LA and just start start dropping it in LA? Well, no, we've always kind of had links there. We've always done our shoots there before. I've got a lot of friends that work out there and different things like that. And there's a few people from LA that wear the brand already. So it's like a mixture of kind of being over there for a bit of time, that working from there, kind of where we do a pop-up store there, gifting suite there, um, we were over there for Coachella last year doing some gifting as well. I didn't didn't really do what we wanted it to do, but I think it's 
if we actually go with a strategy and a plan. What part of the strategy didn't work at Coachella? Just had too much fun. <laughs> at least you're honest, mate. Nah. At least uh, you're we're honest. working with an external company. To be fair, and there's a lot of promises um, that we, you know, we get it on this person, we get it on this person. You'd be hand delivering a jacket that we made personally for someone. When I got there, no, you can hand deliver it to the stylist. Actually, no, I'm going to deliver it to the stylist for you. You stay here, and it was just kind of didn't work out how it was meant to, but we no longer work with that company. So, and did and did that did that person even wear that jacket that no. was handmade? Wow. Yeah. So there's a lot. So, so I, I presume when you're making a handmade piece, there's a hell of a lot of cost in that as well. Yeah. Like obviously it's part of anything. It was, when I say handmade, there was a lot of, it was a, an original control club jacket, but with a lot of extra personalized pieces on it for um, a few people. But yeah, it just, it just didn't work out. But in this industry, you get a lot of people that can promise, you know, promise the world. Like I know this person, I know this person. I'll get it on them. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed. And then it's not. Yeah, it's, it's it's a it's a dark one of the one of the things I've noticed is that there's not only a lot of that that goes on in the industry, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, internal hate between brands, like in terms of like in the in the in the industry as well. Like it's a it's a small section, but like on the outside, people seem like they want people to do well, but really they think it's a one big competition. They're trying to shoot each other down. There's a lot a lot of that that goes on in the space too. That I think that doesn't need to happen. Yeah, there's, there's definitely enough customers out there for every brand to be successful and kind of do their own thing. So, yeah, I think for me, I just focus on what we're doing and try and make, you know, our customers happy as we possibly can do. So your biggest, so we were saying about your your, your predicted like revenues and stuff like that in the next in the next year, in the next 20, 12 to 24 months, what do, you, what do you kind of predict you're going towards? 15 to 20. So I think... This year we've forecasted just over 12, um, but I think we'll overachieve on that. And then I think we've got to really, if we, if we want to scale, I think it's got, got to aim for between 15 to 20. Yeah. And what? And how, how long do you, do you go and break the 50s and all this kind of stuff down the track? Go on, get, 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 give us something you've got to stand by so you've got to head towards it. Five years. Yeah. I think realistically... To build it so it's rolling around every year. For me, that's that's the thing, and, I, and I'm sure for Scott as well. We we want the business to be profitable, to be powerful, and kind of I don't really want to go for a huge target again. We've tried to do it in the past, and it's like you know, come out at the end of the year where you've overspent on a million things, and you could have actually pulled the business back a little bit, and had an amazing profitable business, and you know, live a good life. Yeah, I think I think the pro- the profit thing is is so so important. I know. I know that people get so tied into pumping up the revenue so they get a higher multiple and exit and stuff like that. And I think it's all just a, it's all just a big one false economy in it really. Yeah. But I think on that, even though on, on the exit, I don't think people, any big corporation that's buying, it's not going to look at just your turnover number. They're going to look at your profit as well. So obviously you can pump it right up, but they're still going to look at that and analyze where's your profit out versus it. You won't just get a multiple straight off your turnover. Yeah. But but I think a lot of brands think that yeah. though. Oh, without uh, a doubt, yeah. Do you, yeah, know, yeah, do you know what I mean? I'm not saying that they would get it. I'm just saying that that because of they because their nature is like they want to say X Y Z number, they just go and pump. But what's your profit margin? Yeah. How much are you taking out the business like at the end of the year? Yeah, I think that's it. I think you. I, I've kind of given up on all the ego stuff now. 
I really just want to enjoy the business, enjoy the process, makes obviously the profit that we need to hit and just have fun. And kind of design what you want to design as well and get and get back to and get back just to designing pieces that you're ultimately passionate about and light you up. Yeah, exactly that. Just be fully passionate behind the business in, in every aspect as well. Like I love I love being involved in the marketing team as well. And when we go away on amazing shoots and the concepts that they come up with and look at it and just think like be excited by everything that we do on a day to day and that kind of resonate through the clothing, through the sales and through the business. I was speaking to a, a CEO of um he used to be former CEO of, of Next when they're actually successful. A good friend of mine. And we were, on a, we were on a walk. And he was telling me that a lot of brands pursue growth for growth's sake. And it's what, it's what like kind of Next did and other brands that, that, that killed themselves over time, you know, because, of, because they just pursued mass amount of growth over, over a period of time for, for no other re- for a reason than just growing there's no it kind of it's kind of a metric growth doesn't mean anything does it no and i think that's it it's like you know some speak to some people that have totally different businesses in completely different spaces and you know they're you've got a small company makes massive profit they don't plan any future just like we just keep just gonna keep doing what we do we've got these contracts got this going on i've been making this amount every year and they're the happiest people in the world and you think why does everyone chase, you know, trying to do these massive numbers? And it's like, how much, how much money can you actually spend at the end of it? Like, I, I can't talk about this on this podcast, but I will in the future when I've, when I've executed on it. But I had a massive realisation with this literally five, six days ago. And I will, and I look forward to doing a podcast on it on my own when I'm ready to do it. But there is so much truth in, in in this in this whole um thought process of like this growth for growth's sake it's just a it's just a game where you'll spin your gears and you keep spinning them and there's no real um fundamental outcome in it because the growth you're pursuing is pursued because of e- the ego attachment that you have to competing with someone else or f- for this growth and th- and then like with you when you pursued just growth off the back of data you got away from what you were actually passionate about in the first place and your, and your revenue went down. Yeah. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like it, it's kind of, it kind of, you got the growth, but your revenue went down and the clothing you were putting out wasn't fully, if you're honest, aligned with who you were and what you wanted to put out. Exactly. Yeah. I think it's like you can lose your purpose by chasing number or you can be fully purposeful in everything that you do, be happy in it, believe in it and enjoy what goes on. So how do how do you how if you, if you were going to give um, a clean description of how you got close to purpose, what would how would you describe how you got closer and closer to your to your fundamental purpose within what you're trying to build? I think I just focused on what why I was doing it and what what like what mattered to me is like do I want to enjoy going to work every single day? Or, I don't know, it's, it's quite hard for one actually to understand. Like, I think it was just, I got to the stage, like I was saying, on the product side of things, where I was just, it was, I was stressed all the time and I was like, it was getting to me, you know, when you think like, this is hard, like, like do I just want to keep, do I want to keep doing it almost to that point? And then I think when I, I like stopped and thought, like, no, I love, I thought back to the start and when I started the brand and 
what it was like when I started it and how fun it was and all the cool stuff that we're doing and got to go around the world and got to do all these amazing things. And I was like, let's get this working. It's a big business. Like it just needs tweaking, you know, yeah. like, and that's, yeah. and it's like all that hard work you've done over the years and you see other people that, you know, have done just as much hard work on their brands and, and they've gone like, you see it a lot at the moment, brands going left, right and center. And you think like, I don't want to be one of them brands. Like, let's get this right. Let's, let's make it enjoyable. But, I love working hard and I love, well, working hard and working on what, what I enjoy. So it's like, just, just put everything behind it and kind of not stop until I was happy in it. But now I just feel super happy in everything that we're doing. So kind of turned around a lot quicker now, probably, probably 12 to six, 12, six months to 12 months and completely changed where I was at as a mind, mindset way, everything. Are there things, uh, are there certain ways that you start your day that obviously set you up for success in what you're doing and allow you to be creative? Like, are you meditating in the morning? Are you going out for morning walk? Or how are you setting up your day to win? No, you know what? My setup, it probably could be a lot better. But what I do now, which I didn't do, is I'll always set an alarm early so that I wake up before anyone else, up before my little boy wakes me up. So I'll get up, go downstairs, just have my normal glass of water, do anything I need to do until he gets up and then I really enjoy my half an hour with him before I leave to go to work. So just kind of get my enjoyment there. And I'm at work, I'll train at lunchtime or if I don't train at lunchtime, if it's so three days a week, I'll train at lunchtime. The rest of the week, I'll train in the evening. But it's it's more just enjoying everything that I'm doing so I don't, like I'm on all, t- all, all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I don't, I can jump on my laptop in the morning. I'm not stressed. I can jump on it at night. I can, you know, I can do it all the times where there's appointment. I couldn't do that. I felt like I just couldn't do it. Yeah. I think having that training in there and for kind of being in control of my day from the start is a lot better. No, I, I, I feel you on that. And mate, this it's a question I love to ask people when they exit this podcast. But if there's like one piece of golden wisdom that you can offer this audience, if you had to check out the world tomorrow, if you, and you couldn't take you couldn't take the clothing brand, you couldn't take anything else with you, but you could just leave this audience with one pearl of wisdom that's going to move them at least one percent forward today in their life. What would it be for you? Stop focusing on what you're chasing and enjoy while you're chasing it, mate. I love that. That's brilliant. Yeah, I think that's important. And also, I've got a few more. Go on. I've got I've got it tattooed on my leg. I had it when I started the brand and saying. Never let fear kill your dream because I think there's too many people that won't start because they're scared of failing or it not working. And I think I was probably one of them before I started a business and it took, you know, doing the TV side of things to give me the confidence to actually start a business. And then now, you know, the business is a lot bigger than I ever imagined it being. But a lot of people, you know, might not have started it. You don't know what you could have. Yeah, I, I resonate with you on so much of that because at the end of the day, if you don't pursue what you find most meaningful at the time that you find it most meaningful, you are denying yourself some highly satisfying days of your life because you just you just dulling yourself by doing stuff that, that isn't meaningful to you. So if you can get close to what more of what's meaningful, like what you're saying then I think that's that's the true essence of, of what people term as happiness. Yeah, without a doubt. 
Mate, I appreciate you coming and distilling your knowledge on here today. I really appreciate it. I got, I, I got Hopefully, it. it's been helpful. Mate, you have, you have, uh, mate, I've, I've thrown, I've thrown some, some questions at you, that's for sure. But I really appreciate your time. And I think there's going to be a lot of value in this for you guys that listen to this. Do me a solid favor, guys. Yeah. If you, if you like, if you can just, if you share this on social media, I'd appreciate it. If you can put it in your, in the WhatsApp groups, if you share it with your friends, if you can drop me a review on Apple and let us know how the podcast went on there because, and rating on Spotify and all this stuff, it all helps as I try and bring you the best guests at the right time with the right information that's going to move you forward at 1% daily in your life. You know I'm passionate about it. You know I love it on a different level. And I appreciate every single one of you that listens. Much love. Guys, do me a solid favor. Drop a comment below this video and let us know who you want on the podcast next. (laughs) 